So, 3,000 years ago, give or take, there was this man named Ehud. Now, before we go on, think about what I just said. This is the fact that we know anything about a guy living in 1200 BC is kind of miraculous, I think you'll agree. But it gets so much better. We know that Ehud was a sword maker. And at one point, he makes himself a double-edged sword. We know how long the sword was. A cubit. It's about a foot and a half. We even know that Ehud was left-handed. Why do we know all this? Like, d doesn't this seem like an absurd amount of detail to know about some guy who lived in 1200 BC? I'm sure you've gathered by now. The story of Ehud appears in Judges chapter 3. But why? Back to the story. Ehud is sent to Eglon. Eglon is this foreign king, the king of Moab. And he's been ruling over the Israelites for 18 years. And Ehud is supposed to carry their tax, the, the tribute, to Eglon. So Ehud takes the money, but he also straps the sword that he's made to his right leg and covers himself in a cloak. So now we're thinking, okay, Ehud's up to something. Eglon may not get his money after all. And here's what we know about Eglon. Uh, he's fat. And not just Aunt Nora fat. We're talking about giant gangster slug Jabba the Hutt fat. So Ehud does give Eglon the money. But then he sends away all the people who had helped him carry the tribute to Moab. Think about that. He delivered so much money that he had to have a whole entourage to help him carry it. He leans into Eglon and whispers, I have a secret message for you, O king. Now, anyone who's ever watched The Godfather or seen a Shakespeare play, really just anybody, immediately knows where this is going. No one delivers a secret message without some ulterior motive. Eglon, of course, falls for it. Gets up to come towards Ehud. Ehud stretches out his left hand. Now remember, Ehud was left-handed. If someone was about to draw a sword on you, you'd expect it to come from your left, his right, his right hand. So when Ehud draws his sword with his left hand, Eglon is totally unprepared. Ehud shoves the sword into Eglon, and again, just an absurd amount of detail here, Eglon is so overweight, remember Java, that his own fat folds over the entire 18 inches of the sword. And something, maybe excrement, maybe his guts, starts to spill out of him. Before we continue with the story, let me just remind you, um, this is in your Bible. This is the same book you carry around with you that talks about Noah's animals on the ark and Jesus caring for little kids and healing the sick. Just want to get that reality check out of the way. If a child carried a modern version of this story into school with him, they'd probably confiscate it and send it to the counselor. But this story is sitting in every hotel room, every Sunday school classroom, every courtroom in America just waiting to be rediscovered. Isn't that interesting? Okay. Let's finish the story. Ehud leaves the sword in Eglon, runs out the back door and locks it. Meanwhile, Eglon's bodyguards, well, such that they are, are growing suspicious, but assuming that Eglon's taking a dump. Finally, they barge in, and Eglon is there lying in a pool of his own excrement on the floor. Meanwhile, Ehud makes it back to his camp, calls the men of Israel. They come down out of the hills to kill 10,000 Moabite soldiers. <sighs> 
Welcome to the podcast, Judges Chapter 3. My name is Steve. This week we get into the real action of Judges. It's a bloody mess. From now until Chapter 21, things are only going to go from bad to worse. It's ancient Israelite storytelling mixed with Quentin Tarantino from here on out. Welcome to the story. discussion on the rest of chapter 3 is going to be brief. There are a couple important highlights. 3 starts out by reminding us where we left off in chapter 2, that the Canaanites are left in the land because God is now going to use them to test Israel. God wants to find out what they're made of, and if they're going to stick by the covenant or not. Remember we introduced the idea of the covenant last week and how central the action in Judges is to this idea of the covenant. But verse 7, we run into this common theme which we see throughout Judges. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baal and Ashtoreth. So he began to have these judges raised up. The, the first is Othaniel, who does a good job, conquers a foreign king. But then look at verse 12. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. And you recognize the formula. You'll hear this wording over and over and over. And of course you remember Eglon, but but look at the language here. The Lord strengthened Eglon. Why is God working against his own people? Why would God make someone more powerful who is threatening his own people? Well, remember, we have to go back to the covenant. We talked about this last week. God's actions make perfect sense when you realize that God will always act in accordance with the covenant he made with his people. Deuteronomy 28, which lists the blessings and curses of the treaty between Israel and God. Remember, this lists blessings, but it also lists curses. And one of those curses is that the enemy of Israel will be made more powerful, which is exactly what we're seeing here. But now verse 15, the sons of Israel cry out to the Lord, and the Lord raises up Ehud, you remember the left-handed sword maker, and at this point, I want to point out a, a quick, uh, or a quirk, rather, in the language. Then I'm going I'm to leave it to you to decide if this is important or not. Ehud is not referred to as a judge. In Hebrew, the word for judge is mishpat. He's not introduced that way. So he's introduced not as a mishpat, but as a mashiach. Mashiach means savior. If you recognize this word, Messianic Jews still refer to Jesus, or Yeshua, as Moshiach. So let's read verse 15 with that understanding in mind. But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a savior for them, Ehud the son of Gera. Now, no one is suggesting that Ehud was Jesus in a former incarnation or something weird like this. But, but do you see how the introduction of Ehud provides an echo, a forerunner, to the theme of Israel crying out for a savior? Matthew 21.15, Jesus comes to the temple on Palm Sunday, begins to heal in the court of the Gentiles. And Matthew tells us that the children were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna comes from the root Yasha, which means to save. Yasha, Moshiach, you hear the same root in there? Hosanna literally means, save us, please. Yasha na. 
This will become a central theme of Jewish identity throughout the Old Testament, and in Judges especially. Uh, the people cry out for a Savior, and God brings them one. Remember, Jesus is still over a thousand years after Ehud. But already this idea that the people of Israel expect a Savior sent by God to deliver them is being ingrained in their natural or national consciousness. That idea should give you a little pause. Especially if you think the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God. And from here, well, you know the story. Ehud kills Eglon, escapes back to Ephraim, and they take the Moabites. We have a brief introduction of one more judge, Shamgar, in verse 31. But as we wrap up, what's happening here? We're seeing this vacuum of leadership in Israel. These judges come along, but their role, at least according to the text, seems primarily military. Um, though we might see something different with Deborah in chapter 4. Every indication is that Israel would have a period of relative peace, followed by subjugation by one of their neighbors. The author of Judges attributes these periods of subjugation to be the result of Israel's disobedience, violations of the covenant with Yahweh. What we've now seen are several examples of. Um, this is where in Joshua, okay, God is acting to dispossess or conquer the people in the land of Canaan so that Israel can take over. But look what's happening now in Judges. Now God is acting to dispossess Israel. There's this reversal, you see. The lesson for the Israelites is that when you go against God's will, God's plans for you, when you become immoral and compromise with the world around you, it's not just that your life becomes harder. You actually lose what you had. The Israelites lose the land that they had conquered. Why? Well, because God gave them what they had. It was always his and thus always his to take away. And I'm sure by now Job 1, verse 21 is coming to mind. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. It's a complicated application, and a complicated point, um, I, I think, because we all know that bad things happen to good people. When something bad happens, it's not always directly attributed to our disobedience or our lack of attention to God or God's commands. The entire book of Job um, was written specifically to address this question, one of the most basic of the, of the human condition, I think. But there's also an undeniable principle in Scripture, and in Judges we definitely see it, where, where disobedience to God can result in evil. Disobedience to God can result in physical circumstances changing for the worse. This is something I'm currently wrestling with after reading Judges chapter 3. How, how do I reconcile God's covenant, which requires curses be administered, and his mercy, which overpowers those curses, those consequences? We in the, the new covenant days might call that grace. Do we see grace in the Old Testament? Repeatedly. Next week on the podcast, Deborah woman among women. Murder, insults, intrigue. Like I said, things only get messier from here on out. If you want to be here for chapter four, we'll see you then.